You are now listening to the July 3rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the seven signs, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with the seven signs. Hello, heart and soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. The four books of gospel in the Bible are filled with stories about the miracles Jesus performed. Just to recount a few, he fed 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. He healed a blind man to see and a deaf to hear. He healed the sick and cured the leopards of their leprosy. He even resurrected a dead person. He walked on the water, calmed the storm, and transformed into a form of glorious light. The most amazing wonder is how he died on the cross, only to resurrect in three days after his burial. He went up to heaven as his disciples watched. These are awe-inspiring and jaw-dropping stories of amazing feats Jesus performed. We commonly refer to these wondrous signs as miracles. In fact, the Hebrew word for miracle, as used in the books of the Gospels, is dunamis. It generally translates into authority, might, or power. We surmise that the word dunamis is used because it highlighted the power contained in the miracles Jesus performed. People's interest was on what Jesus did and how that act of miracle benefited them. As evidence, People started to follow Jesus after seeing him perform miracles. Obviously, they wanted to be the beneficiaries of these miracles. In other words, people followed Jesus to satisfy their needs. Jesus served a purpose for them. Jesus himself recognized this and commented on it. In John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, You seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus uttered these words in the backdrop of one of the best-known miracles. He had just fed the multitude of people. Jesus performed this miracle and showed his authority or power by which 5,000 people were fed with a mere five loaves of bread and two fish. People started to follow him once they realized they could fill their stomachs through Jesus' miracles. But recognizing that, Jesus withdrew himself from them and went to Capernaum. Then people went after him to Capernaum on boats in search of him, and they met up with him on the other side of the sea. Despite all their efforts in crossing the sea to meet him, Jesus did not seem to be welcoming them. Jesus did not jump up and down and say, Welcome, people, for coming to me. Rather, he told them something just the opposite. Jesus pointed out their selfish motivation. He told them the truth. Interestingly, Jesus did not use the dunamis to refer to the miracle he performed. He used the word simeon instead, which means sign. Why did Jesus choose a different word, simeon, instead of the word dunamis? The word dunamis focuses on power itself, the act that was performed. In contrast, 
the word Simeon, focuses on the meaning of power, the sign implicated in the act that was performed. Once we understand this difference and think about what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 26, we can begin to understand what Jesus was trying to convey to the people. He was saying, The reason you are following me is not because you understood the meaning of the miracles I performed and realized who I am, but because you saw you could fill your needs and your want to fill more needs through my power. After pointing out the true motivation behind those that followed him, Jesus then did not allow them to continue their ways. He did not allow them, whose primary motivation was to fill their needs, to continue to chase after him. John chapter 6, verse 66 tells us that many of his followers until then withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That is a sobering thought. Well then, how about us? Why do we follow Jesus? Is it because we truly know who Jesus is? Or is it because Jesus is someone we think that can fill our needs? This is a very important question, because if we are following Jesus without knowing who Jesus really is, and simply because Jesus is someone that can fill our needs, that means we can also leave Jesus one day and stop walking with him. Miracles are something wondrous and amazing that cannot be understood by simply applying our common sense. These miracles represent more than what meets the eye. They signify more than meeting our basic needs about eating food and attaining physical health. Our reason for following Jesus must be for something more than the utilitarian outcomes those miracles may bring on us. Our reason for following Jesus must be because we saw the meaning behind the signs, the true meaning of miracles that Jesus wanted us to see. The purpose of signs lies in witnessing the fact that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, the Christ. The Bible clearly explains this in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thanks to John, many signs Jesus performed have been recorded for us so that we can believe Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior and Messiah, the Christ. And by believing in that truth, we have an eternal life through the power of his name. Starting this week, we are looking at the signs Jesus performed in the book of John. We will cover that for the next 13 weeks. I pray that the purpose behind John's recording of these signs may be revealed in our lives. This concludes today's episode of The Seven Signs. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is beauty in both singleness and marriage. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, I hope you or somebody around you does, you can look on with, whether in this room, at one of our other locations, or wherever you might be online. I invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here is God's word to us. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Let me pause there for just a second before we go on and acknowledge that this letter that we're reading in the Bible was written to a real group of Christians in a real church in a real city called Corinth in the first century. And Paul, who's writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is addressing something they had written to him. So Corinth was a sex-crazed, sexually confused culture. And many of the people in the church were brand new believers in Jesus. And they were trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in this culture around them. And Paul had been telling them to flee from sexual immorality. We saw this two weeks ago, a command from God to flee any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And that sounded so extreme to them, much like it sounds to us today, to the point where they just began to think, well, then maybe we should just flee any and all sexual activity, period. So apparently they had written him saying it seems good for a man not to have any sexual relationship with a woman, or vice versa. Is that right? In response to that question, God says through Paul to them and to us, verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So we'll keep going here and then come back to all this. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, 
I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. All right, we'll stop there. There's so much here. I want to show you, in the next few minutes, three foundational truths about both singleness and marriage that then lead to two commands from God. The first of which will be for all of us, whether we're single or married. And then the second, specifically for those who are married. And that will lead all of us to the gospel. So that's, that's where we're going. You might take notes along the way. Let's start with these three foundational truths about both singleness and marriage. Here they are. Number one, both singleness and marriage are good gifts. They're both good gifts. So I'll come back to this on the screen in just a minute, but let me show this to you straight from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. This is Paul talking as a single man. He said, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. The Bible's referring there to the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. And in the very next verse, verse 8, Paul, again single, writes to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So it's good to be single, Paul says. Both singleness and marriage are good gifts. When we read that, we need to realize how revolutionary this was for Paul to write. It was revolutionary in first century Corinth. Think about it. Based on this command to flee sexual immorality, to sort of flee all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, that means to be single is not to engage in sexual activity. And that sounded crazy to people in Corinth. People who thought you need sexual activity in order to be fully yourself, much like our culture today says. In the Bible, God is saying, no, you don't. It's actually good to be single and to not engage in sexual activity. It's good. It's a gift from God. And God never gives bad gifts. And this was revolutionary, not just in first century Corinth or in our culture today. It was revolutionary in biblical history. So I want to show you this. I want to take you on a super quick tour of the Bible. And I want to show you how Jesus and the gospel totally changed the view of singleness in the Bible. We won't have time to turn to all these places, so I'm just going to list them out. You might write them down. I'll put some of them on the screen. But it all starts way back in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, first chapter in the Bible, verses 27 and 28. The Bible tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God created man and woman to be fruitful and to multiply. How would they do that? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Man and woman will come together as one flesh in marriage, and they will have babies. They will multiply. Which is why, so a few chapters later, when God is forming the people of Israel, His covenant people in the Old Testament, God tells them He's going to bless them and multiply them. So what does He promise them? Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars if you're able to number them. 
Then he said to him, so shall your what be? So shall your offspring be. God says, I'm going to give you offspring. More numerous than the stars in the sky. Like tons of children and grandchildren. And God's design for producing offspring was what? Marriage. From the very beginning, marriage and offspring were central in the blessing of God. God gives the same promise of children through marriage to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, verse 3, Jacob in Genesis 28, 14. We just walked through all of this in our Bible reading, and it's interesting. Some of the most tense moments in these initial stories in the Bible revolve around barrenness. It was a curse to be barren. Sarah was initially barren. Rachel was initially barren. And I say curse because if, you're fa- if you were barren, your family legacy would stop with you because you wouldn't have children. Genesis 48 verse 16 says your name would be virtually cut off from the earth if you didn't have kids. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 6 says your name was blotted out from Israel if you didn't have a child. What that means is you didn't want to be single in the Old Testament. Singleness was like a curse. Most all the classifications of singles were undesirable. Singles included widows and often those widows would remarry very soon. Singles included eunuchs who had their sexual ability physically taken from them. Singles included people with diseases like leprosy who were unapproachable by others. That's why if you were a young man or a young woman, you got married ASAP. You didn't want to be single, which heightens then how we view Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha as prophets whom God called to be single in the Old Testament. That was undesirable in their day. Because the culture of God's people in the Old Testament equated the the blessing of God with marriage and children. Which made sense in light of the way the Old Covenant worked. So the people of God would fill the earth primarily through procreation. Through having offspring. And you couldn't do that if you were single. You were out. But then, watch this. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. So this is a promise of Jesus coming to die on the cross says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, in other words, his descendants, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He didn't have descendants who would come after him, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, watch this, he shall see his what? Offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Are you following this? Jesus who, by the way, would be the offspring of a woman in a supernatural way, just like God promised in Genesis chapter 3, he would be cut off out of the land of the living without any physical descendants. So he's single, yet he has offspring. How is that possible? His offspring are those he died to save. Ah, this is the gospel. So pay particularly close attention if you're new to Christianity or exploring Christianity. The good news of the Bible is that God has sent Jesus to die on a cross 
for sinners so that anyone who trusts in Jesus can be forgiven of all their sin and can become a child of God. You can do this today. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you to do this today. And when you do, and for all who have, realize what's happening here in the Bible. God is foretelling here in the Old Testament how His family will multiply ultimately not through physical procreation, but through spiritual regeneration. Not through babies being born, but through people being born again through faith in Jesus. And this totally changes everything. Don't miss it. Like the gospel, the new covenant, the coming of Jesus would radically transform the picture of God's blessing. And you see it promised in the very next chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 54.1 says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break in, forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. The rest of this chapter goes on to talk about how the Lord God, your maker, is your husband and He gives new life through His Spirit to all who trust in Him. Many who will trust in Him as a result of hearing about Him through your life. Then you get two chapters over in Isaiah 56, verse 3, you read this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from His people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You're hearing this. Eunuchs, singles, like don't worry. You're not a dry tree. Your name will not be cut off. Why? Because God's coming kingdom is not ultimately dependent on physical offspring. God's kingdom expands through spiritual offspring. And your name will be better than if you had sons and daughters. All of this was being promised in the Old Testament, but it wasn't a part of Old Testament culture, which is why people were shocked when Jesus came on the scene. He started talking about marriage, and he started talking about singleness in desirable ways. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Very similar to what the Corinthians were saying. And Jesus responded in Matthew 19, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs, so this is not physically talking about eunuchs now, who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus just said in these verses, it's good to be single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were shocked. This was revolutionary. In the Old Testament, God's people multiplied almost exclusively through marriage and children. Now in the New Testament, we're seeing a picture start to unfold of people from every nation and tribe and tongue born not of natural birth, but of new life. People born again through the Spirit of God. And that new life and the spread of that new life can be a reality regardless of whether you are single or married. So you put it all together and you come back to 1 Corinthians 7, God is clearly saying singleness is a good gift from God that includes heroes of the New Testament. Like, well, most notably Jesus. 
as well as John the Baptist, Paul, Silas, Luke, Titus, Apollos, Lydia, Phoebe, Philip's four unmarried daughters. We could go on and on and on. Singleness is a good gift from God, and marriage is a good gift from God. And part of the problem in 1 Corinthians 7 is addressing people who thought, well, I'd rather be what I'm not. So people who are married were thinking, marriage is not all I thought it would be, so I'd rather be single again. People who are single thinking, I'd rather be married. And God is saying in His words, stop. And trust my goodness in your life. Now, that doesn't mean if you are a single that it's wrong or sinful to desire a husband or wife. 1 Corinthians 7 is actually affirming that desire while also saying, as long as you are single, trust that God is your loving Father, that God has you where you are right now, that God has not forgotten about you, and that God is always, always, always working for your good. Singleness is not a state to be endured as you wait for something better. And we'll get to this more specifically when we get to the last part of 1 Corinthians 7 and see God's specific word to singles in a couple of weeks. But for now, I would just point out, so parents, what this means is that success for our kids is not necessarily them getting married. We need to be very careful as parents not to implicitly or explicitly communicate to our children that marriage is the ideal and singleness is second best. And that is not true biblically. I pray every week for my kids that they would either marry a godly wife or husband or thrive in singleness. And children, students, in addition to anyone else who is single, yes, a potential future marriage is good, but it is not the only option for you to glorify God maximally in your life. Singleness is not a state to be endured as you wait for something better. And if you're married, marriage is not just an obligation you have to fulfill or an arrangement to be tolerated when you prefer something else. Singleness and marriage are both good gifts that God has given to each of us. Which means that if someone is single and gets married, then they exchange one good gift from God for another good gift from God. Or if someone is married and their spouse passes away, then they exchange one good gift from God for another good gift from God. Now one caveat I'll mention is that there are circumstances in marriage when God allows for divorce. And we'll talk more about that next week because that's what comes next in 1 Corinthians 7. But for now, we see that both singleness and marriage are good gifts. And, so second truth, both singleness and marriage display the gospel. So we're going to pick up the pace a little here, but I want to show you how the Bible teaches this. Again, we don't have time to turn to all these places, but you might write down Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33, makes clear that God designed marriage between a man and a woman from the beginning of creation as a picture of Jesus and the church. A husband illustrates Jesus' love for the church by laying down his life to love his wife. And a wife illustrates the church's love for Jesus by following the loving leadership of her husband. 
And this kind of selfless love in both a husband and a wife is evident here in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3-5. through So we're going to talk about that more in a minute. At the same time, I want to encourage single brothers and sisters, whether you're a child or teenager, or you're a senior adult, or no matter how young or old you may be, the gift of singleness also portrays the gospel in a powerful way to the world. Singleness portrays the ultimate identity that we all have in Jesus. Think about it. We live in a world that says you need a spouse to complete you. Or you need sexual activity to fulfill you. But biblical singleness declares to the world that neither of those things are true. Biblical singleness declares to the world that we are complete in Christ, regardless of our marital status. Isaiah 54, John 3, Revelation 19, all describe the Lord as a husband to His people. More satisfying and more eternal than any husband or wife could ever be. And singleness says to the world, I find my ultimate joy in Jesus. And in Him, I have everything I need. In a way that marriage, though also good, doesn't portray in the same way. Amy Carmichael, missionary to India, in her singleness once said, there is joy, joy found in nowhere else when we can look up into Christ's face when He says to us, am I not enough for Thee, mine own, with a true Yes, Lord, you are enough. And all the more so in a world that says and is saying to us today, you need sexual activity in order to be fully yourself. And it's not true. So don't buy that lie. Instead, make this truth clear in the world. Jesus and His Word and His ways are all we need to experience all that He has created us to be. Singleness portrays our ultimate identity in Jesus and our eternal identification with the church because we know that physical family relationships in this world, as wonderful as they are, are passing away. And only a relationship with Jesus through faith in Him as a part of His spiritual family, the church, lasts forever. Jesus makes clear when He's asked about marriage in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying here that marriage is temporary. It's an institution from God for this world that will not be in heaven. So married people are only married in this life. And then for billions and trillions of years, we will all be single. Marriage is temporary. Relationship to Jesus and His church is timeless. And singleness uniquely portrays that reality. All this to say, both singleness and marriage display the gospel. And, number three, both singleness and marriage bring God glory. I want, you want, every follower of Jesus wants to maximally glorify God, right? This is the question that drives us all. How can I most glorify God? And singleness and marriage are both designed to do exactly that. That's where 1 Corinthians 6 left us at the end of that chapter a couple of weeks ago. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against its own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So 
How do we do that? How do we glorify God with our bodies, whether we are single or married? And that question leads to two commands from God. The first, which we've already seen and we just read, so regardless of whether you are single or married, so this command is for every single one of us. Here it is. Run from any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Flee from. Don't flirt with. Don't rationalize. Don't reason with. Run from any and all sexual thinking, desiring, acting, anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And just to clarify, when we're saying flee sexual thinking outside of marriage between a man and a woman, we're talking about lustful thinking, thinking sexually about someone who's not your husband or wife. When we're talking about sexual desiring, we're not saying that it's wrong to have a desire for sexual activity, but that it is sexual immorality to feed or fuel those desires outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And just to clarify one other thing here, because I I hear this from leaders of our preparing for marriage ministry, where many dating or engaged couples are already living together, when the Bible doesn't give any space for single brothers and sisters in Christ to live like they're married when they're not married. Cohabitation may be common according to our culture, but according to God, it is sin. It is sexual immorality, and God clearly calls you to flee it. And then, if you are married. So we're going to talk, again, more in-depth, couple weeks from now about singleness because that's the focus of the last half of first corinthians 7 but this first part of first corinthians 7 gives a specific command to those who are married so we'll close here if you are married god calls you to run to loving god glorifying sexual activity with your husband or wife run to loving God-glorifying sexual activity with your husband or wife, meaning God has designed sexual thinking and desiring and acting with your husband or wife to be an expression of love for one another and to bring glory to Him. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. We'll come back to that phrase in a minute. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm doing my best here to keep this GPG rated. But God is specifically saying here that sexual activity is beautiful by His design for marriage. And it should be actively pursued by a husband and a wife. Husband or wife should run to it in loving, God-glorifying ways. I mentioned verse 3, this phrase, husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. That term means that a husband and a wife have a responsibility 
to give of themselves physically to each other. Now, unfortunately, these verses have often been either ignored in marriage or twisted to mean things God doesn't mean for marriage. So spouses may be tempted to ignore these verses and not to pursue, to run to loving, God-glorifying sexual activity with their husband or wife. Not to prioritize that. Not to show its importance in marriage. Or spouses may twist these verses in ways that lead to demands or hurt or abuse in marriage that is not tolerable, is not loving, and does not bring glory to God. And twisting or ignoring these verses misses God's good design for marriage. What God is saying to husbands and wives here in this command to pursue loving, God-glorifying sexual activity with your husband or wife, He is telling husbands and wives, serve your spouse selflessly. To let your love for your husband or your wife be driven by the question, how can I please you? Not by the demand, here's how you must please me. God tells us, again, Ephesians chapter 5, that marriage illustrates the relationship between Jesus and the church, which means that a wife, yes, looks for ways to honor and please her husband out of selfless love for him. While a husband takes the lead in gently, lovingly pursuing his wife's good and pleasure above his own in such a way that They are both selflessly serving each other. Now you might wonder at this point, well, how can sexual activity be selfless? I thought sexual activity was all about fulfilling your own desires. And this is where I can't improve on the words from one of the resources we recommend called True Sexual Morality by Daniel Heimbach. And he writes, I'm going to hedge a couple words here uh, to keep it GEPG, but I think you'll get the point. Some wonder how sexual activity can be truly satisfying or enjoyable without focusing on yourself. The the idea of selflessness here seems contradictory. Does not getting the most out of this activity require putting your own desires ahead of everything else? The surprising answer is no, both on biblical terms and based on human experience. God has embedded a paradox in how this kind of pleasure works that helps to restrain natural human selfishness. The more a couple focuses on pleasing each other, the more enjoyment each receives in return. And the more a person focuses on demanding his or her own satisfaction, the less satisfaction is possible. Self-centeredness always destroys satisfaction in this arena, while unselfishness always makes it better. This is how God has wired husbands and wives for marriage to serve each other selflessly in this way. And in so doing, to satisfy your spouse regularly. Again, I'll come back to this on the screen in a minute, but verse 5 is clear. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So yes, there may be 
times when sexual activity is paused, but that time is intentional. It's not just letting it fall by the wayside. It's prayerful. And it's temporary. Then come together again. Why? Well, for many reasons in the Bible, including what God's saying here, that regular, satisfying sexual activity in marriage guards your husband or wife against sexual immorality. This is all over God's Word. We won't dive into these passages here, but we see explicit language in Proverbs 5 about a husband's body and a wife's body filling one another with delight as they're intoxicated in each other's love. The same pictures all over the book of Song of Solomon. I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Our desire is for each other. It says we are sick with love. God has designed marriage for the display of passionate love. So if you are married, run to passionate, pure, loving, God-glorifying sexual activity with your husband or wife. Realizing that we do live in a broken world where spouses are prone to be unloving, selfish, even abusive, which again, is not tolerable in any way. And knowing that we may have physical struggles that affect this satisfaction or past hurt that can make this satisfaction challenging. I have a video on that resources side about what can be done when sexual activity is a struggle in marriage where we hit on some of these issues. And I encourage you not just to use that resource, but share this struggle with other Christian brothers or sisters who can pray with you, walk with you, according to God's Word, so that husbands and wives might do what God is calling us to do, has created marriage to do, to run to loving, God-glorifying sexual activity in marriage, knowing that. So now we come back to where we started from the very first week of this series for all of us, whether single or married knowing that each of our bodies, like clay in a potter's hands, has been created and formed and fashioned by God Himself. Yet in this broken world, we all have broken bodies. And the good news of the Bible is that Jesus has given His body to make our bodies new. Take our brokenness and turn it, transform it into beauty. And when we trust in Him and His Word more than we trust ourselves, and certainly more than we trust what the world is saying around us, the lies that are being told to us, when we trust in God and His Word, He will lead us for our earthly and eternal good. Remember, in all these commands in the Bible, God is pointing us to that which is good, and He's protecting us from that which is not. All while calling every single one of us, some of us in marriage, some of us in singleness, but all of us, God is calling to deep and abiding fulfillment in Him. To enjoy His good gifts, some in this way, some in that way, for the display of His gospel, and ultimately for the glory of our God. Will you bow your heads with me? 
in prayer. And I just I want to give you a moment just to soak in. We've talked about a lot. But just to soak in what we've just heard from God. And I want to ask you, in this room, one of our locations, wherever you might be watching online, just first and foremost, like, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus to forgive you of all your sins before God? To bring you into a relationship with God to give you new eternal life? And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I invite you right now in the quietness of this moment just to say to God, God, today, I want to experience new life through faith in Jesus. I know that I have sinned against you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the dead. And through faith in him, I can be restored to relationship with you and have new life and you will take all my brokenness and you will redeem and make me new. When you say that to God, the Bible talks about that as being born again, you experiencing new life through faith in Him. I invite you to say that to Him today and for all who have, all who have new life. I was just so overwhelmed thinking about diving into this Word today. There's so many different circumstances, situations, struggles, some in singleness, some in marriage, just pray that God's Word, by the power of His Spirit, would just land in a helpful way on each individual heart. So I invite you just to lay your circumstances, your situation, your struggles even, before God, honestly. And ask Him for the help that He promises to give you when you ask. God, we, we pray. We want to glorify You with our bodies. So help us to do that in singleness. Help us to do that in marriage. According to your word, God, free us from the lies of this culture. Help us to trust the truth of your word. Help us all to run from any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. God, we pray for that for all of us. Let me pray specifically for those who are married. God, we pray that you'd help us to experience loving sexual activity that brings glory to you in marriage. God, we we pray all of our circumstances with all of our situations. Help us to glorify you with our bodies. We come to you with all kinds of brokenness and we pray that you would Redeem us and make our bodies and our use of them in this world beautiful, good for us, and glorifying to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart.
to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise his name, I'm fixed upon it, name of God's redeeming love. Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place, and I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Like a feather, bind my yielded heart to thee. Let me know thee in thy fullness, guide me by thy mighty hand, till transformed in thy own image, in thy presence I shall stand. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello, everyone. My name is Terry from The God of Abraham. What comes to mind when you think of Abraham? You might think of him as the father of the faith, or the father of Isaac and grandfather of Jacob. Perhaps you may think of his obedience to God at Mount Moriah or his faithfulness when God told him to leave his country and go to a land that he would show him. You would think of what he did and what kind of person he was. However, if we focus on Abraham like this, we might miss something. We must remember that it was God who molded Abraham. We place a lot of attention on how God promised Abraham that he would be a father of many nations and that his faith was great. However, Abraham didn't have great faith from the start. He was a human just like we are, with many faults, shortcomings, and failings. 
How did he become called the father of all the faithful? Did it happen naturally over time? Does time by itself make our faith mature? Faith doesn't simply fully develop over time. We must go through the process of maturing our faith over time for our faith to become established. God leads us to maturity. Abraham didn't think to himself, Ah, I should let my faith mature and become the father of the faith. God chose Abraham. Then, through many trials and testings, developed Abraham into the faithful servant that would be called your father by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 51 verse 2. The title of this program is The God of Abraham, taken from Exodus chapter 3 verse 6, where God revealed himself to Moses as the God of Abraham. I want us to see how God's hand molded Abraham into the father of the faithful. If we could see God's hand, then we could see how he is ever so evident in our lives and is molding each of us into his children. I hope our faith will become more mature within God's hand. To see how God's hand molded Abraham, we must start with the events that happened before Abraham. It's because God didn't suddenly call Abraham one day. We must first think about the situation in which Abraham was called so we could understand the entire picture of God's ministry of salvation. First, we'll briefly summarize Genesis chapter 1 through 11 and enter Abraham's story starting from chapter 12. Genesis chapter 1 begins God's creation. The important point to consider in the beginning of God's creation is that God knew everything and yet He began creation. God knew humans would sin, but He had a plan to reconcile man back to Himself. God knew they would sin, and yet He began creation to have eternal fellowship with them. Understanding the fall of man is the first step in understanding salvation. God began creation to have an eternal fellowship with humans. However, the history of man is a history of disobedience. Instead of obeying the will of God who is good, they instead believed the serpent's deception and acted according to Satan's lie. Therefore, they could no longer have fellowship with God. Afterwards, humans continued to sin and became farther from God. This history is recorded in Genesis chapter 3 through 11. First, we'll read Genesis chapter 3 verse 24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Edom cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. They were driven out of the Garden of Eden and went east. Therefore, if they were to enter Eden again, they would have to enter from the east. God placed cherubim, otherwise known as angels, on the east side of the Garden of Eden so Adam and Eve could not enter. Therefore, in the Bible, the east side has a symbolic meaning of being farther away from God. Adam and Eve sinned and went east. Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel. However, Cain sinned again. Cain committed a terrible sin by killing his brother Abel. Genesis chapter 4 verse 16 says, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Afterwards, his descendants began to commit even more sins, and the world was gradually becoming full of sin. Genesis chapter 6 says, God's heart was deeply troubled that he made people on earth 
and he destroyed them with the earth by a flood. However, Noah was blessed. Noah and eight of his family members were saved from the flood by God's grace. Genesis chapter 9 says, God blessed Noah's family and told them to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. However, humans once again disobeyed God's word. Here is Genesis chapter 11 verse 2. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Moving eastward again symbolically means they went farther away from God. Genesis chapter 11 verse 4 says, Then they said, Come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. God poured His grace upon Noah's family and saved them from the judgment of the flood. Then He blessed them again and told them to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. However, what does Noah's descendants who moved eastward say? They said, Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. From what did they want protection from to build a strong city and high tower so they wouldn't be scattered over the whole earth? God promised Noah and his descendants that never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. However, they didn't believe God. Therefore, they were going to build a tower that reaches heaven and build a strong city that would protect them. Even if God brought judgment again, they would protect their lives on their own. It's very interesting how they use pitch instead of mud. It's because when Noah was building the ark, God told them to cover the interior and exterior of the ark with pitch. This is Genesis chapter 6 verse 14. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. There are many historical records that show how pitch was used for waterproofing. We should pay attention to the fact that Noah's descendant moved eastward and built the city using bricks and used pitch to join the bricks and to waterproof it. They built a high tower to reach heaven so even if the waters rose high, they would be protected. They did this to protect themselves from God. In this way, humans grew farther away from God. Instead of realizing their sin and drawing near God, they went farther away from God. They went against God and wanted to become independent from God with their own strength. This is the theme of Genesis chapter 3 through 11. God already brought judgment once upon all humanity through a flood. In the midst of this, He poured His grace upon Noah's family and protected their lives. However, instead of thanking God, these people tried to get farther away from God. What must God do? Must he bring judgment again? Although God had to bring immediate judgment, he deferred it. Then God began his amazing plan. At the time when everyone was in sin and didn't follow God, God chose one person. That person was Abraham. God chose Abraham and began his grand plan to save all humanity. How great of a person was Abraham that God chose him to save all humanity. We might think that God chose Abraham because he had some great quality about him. Maybe his faith was great, 
or he came from a good family, or he was of good character. If we look at Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, it says, Terah, who was Abraham's father, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. In other words, Abraham's household served idols. Abraham's hometown was a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which was beyond the river. At that time, Ur was the center of worshipping the god of the moon named Sin. Terah's household lived in the center of idol worship, and they worshipped idols. Terah's son Abraham lived in the culture of that land. Symbolically, Ur of the Chaldeans was the worldly center where people didn't serve God. God chose one person from such a place. Now, let's briefly see Abraham's first appearance. I'll read Genesis chapter 11, verses 26 through 30. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Abraham's original name was Abram. His name was still Abram at that time. However, we'll mostly use the name Abraham since it may cause confusion. Abraham's background starts from Terah, who was Abraham's father. It says Terah had Abram, Nahor, and Haran at the age of 70. Therefore, Abraham was one of the three sons. His brother Haran married and had a son named Lot and died before his father at Ur. Abraham and Nahor married. Abraham's wife was Sarai and Nahor's wife was Milcah. Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. This was Abraham's background. Abraham's original name Abram means exalted father. However, unfittingly, Abram's name meant exalted father, but Abram did not have a child. This was ironic. God chose this Abraham. Abraham didn't have a child. In other words, it symbolized a hopeless human. God chose a hopeless man, and his plan was to give true hope to Abraham. To briefly summarize today's content, God began creation to have fellowship with his people. However, instead of following God's word, humans followed the serpent's word and later became gradually farther away from God. God brought judgment upon the people through a flood and showed grace by allowing new life to continue through a person named Noah. However, instead of realizing God's grace and drawing near to God, Noah's descendants built the great Babel to protect themselves from God. God scattered these people and began the history of salvation to save them from the hopeless fate of humans. This was done by calling Abraham, who lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, which symbolized the worldly center. Abraham was hopeless because he didn't have a child. God called Abraham and he would make him into an ancestor of all believers who are saved. 
I hope you enjoyed this introduction to the God of Abraham. I will see you again next week. Goodbye.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.